G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. Really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We don't ask for much in return, though we'd be incredibly grateful you could pop to Apple Podcast or Acast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, and I really appreciate it if you could take a couple of minutes of your time to leave us a review. I know we've been out of the studio for, for a while, but uh, I hope everyone enjoyed their summer. But joining um, Brian and myself in the studio, we have Dr. Arti Kathrani, who's one of our senior lecturers here in internal medicine and we thought we'd uh, uh, chat to Artie about uh, approach to diarrhea so thank you very much Artie for, for joining us thank you very good um, so uh, and, and thank you we, we, we've had a bit of a hiatus you see over over, over summer um, not not you know not intentional but uh, but it happened one of those things so uh, so hopefully uh, people will be enthused um, by, uh, by a new series of, of, uh, of the podcast so thank you very much so I suppose as far as uh, uh, if you're talking about generics as an approach to, to diarrhea, um, should, should we start with maybe acute presentation of, of dogs and how you would think about that conceptually, please? Sure. So I guess um, an acute case of diarrhea in dogs in general practice. Um, so we would define acute in dogs as less than about three weeks of, of diarrhea. And I think with acute cases, we want to focus the history more so on if there's been any changes in the diet, have the owners changed the diet? Um, we also want to get a really good diet history to make sure that the owners haven't been feeding raw food, whether there could be something there that could have started the acute diarrhea. We also want to get good vaccination history. Um, so the age of the animal is going to be important. If it's a, a puppy, we want to make sure we rule out parvovirus. So we want the vaccination history. We want the deworming history as well. Are they up to date on their antelmintics? Is this a dog that scavenges? Um, does it get table food? Does it go out? Does it get access to things from the garbage? And um, we'd be concerned maybe about pancreatitis there or some kind of acute gastroenteritis episode. Also, we want to know about any in-contact animals, if they have other dogs or cats in the house, have they developed gastrointestinal signs that potentially would suggest an infectious cause? Does the owner have any gastrointestinal signs? We're looking at zoonoses there. And so ascertaining how long the diarrhea has been going on for, have there been any changes in the husbandry, the diet, that's important. And then the character of the diarrhea can also help with etiology. So is it small bowel, large bowel or mixed um, diarrhea? Are there any other signs? Is the dog vomiting? Has it been losing weight? What's its appetite been like? And then I think once you've ascertained the answers to those questions, I think it's important to determine if this is a case of d acute diarrhea that can be managed in an outpatient basis, whether the dog needs to stay in. So I think good physical examination, is the animal dehydrated? What's the cardiovascular status? If there's any concerns on your physical exam, doing a minimum database, do the electrolytes look okay, total solids, PCV? It's also important to ask about the character of the diarrhea. We talked about small bowel, large bowel, but we want to make sure is there any frank blood, any melina, anything concerning there? What is the rectal temperature normal? Um, we just want to kind of div kind of gauge whether this is something we could treat on an outpatient basis or whether we would keep the animal in and um, support it with fluids and um, other kind of gastroprotectants from 
an intravenous point of view. Can I just ask you mm. a question? I know, I know it's probably a commonplace, but the, to describe small bowel, large bowel, or, or mixed, and does it ever get a bit grey? Yeah, it, it gets grey in the respect. So large bowel diarrhea is very much small volumes, increased um, frequency, urgency, presence of mucus and fresh blood, sometimes straining. And then small bowel is usually large volumes, tends to be generally liquid, but can be other consistencies. You can see sometimes see melina, which is an indication of upper gastrointestinal bleeding. Um, you can see weight loss, vomiting. Um, the animal might be inappetent. And so um, also borborygmy, you can see with small bowel diarrhea. So you can get mixed signs where you get both. So I, I don't think it's a case of it, whether it's grey, it's more that you're seeing an animal that has maybe large volumes, but then it has blood, frank blood in its stool. So it's a mixture, it's losing weight, it's vomiting. And is it quite, do you find it easy when you're speaking to, to clients? that you can clarify that or does it get confusing? I think you can clarify because owners are really good at describing usually the character of the stool and if you see blood or mucus and increased frequency they can they can tell you how frequently the animal is opening its bowel they have to for a dog they have to pick it up for a cat they have to clean the litter tray so they're usually good at describing it so um, so they're usually very switched on, and, and some owners even have diaries, which is really like poo diaries, which is really useful. It's, it's, is that something that uh, if a if a client has <coughs> um, an animal that repeatedly has diarrhea, they they keep? Yeah, that. And, and I think that's something they do in in human medicine as well. They keep a diary and they have fecal scores, and we do have fecal charts available to us. Purina and Waltham both have a fecal chart, and I think that's something we should maybe be encouraging owners to do more is to score the stool quality because that also helps when you have the animal on treatment what's the stool doing and and can i ask like when you're when you're thinking about that taking the history and so you're asking questions about raw food i think that's great i think we actually need to do a separate podcast on raw food (laughs) because i think that would open up a can of worms if we go down that rabbit warren at the moment but if you are something like that and they say yes does that make you think that that is the most likely thing or or if they've been with a a dog that's got gi signs or they themselves had gi signs do do you is it kind of a binary thing or you put it all together so it depends on you know you, i suppose what i'm trying to say is if what is the most common thing if you've had a patient that you know the owner has gi signs they're on a raw food diet and the other dog in the house has gi signs you you know how can you how does the dust settle on those mm. i would say the most common reason for an acute presentation of diarrhea we never know what's causing it we don't find the etiology if the owner said to me the dog was eating a raw food diet and that had changed recently in the gastrointestinal or even if they'd been feeding it a longer term um i'll usually put the whole picture together so i if the animal has blood in the stool if it has a high temperature leukocytosis or leukopenia um those kind of things would make me be more concerned and I would want to culture the stool for Salmonella E. coli. I would always encourage owners not to feed raw food, even if the dog didn't had normal stool quality regardless. So I would then have that conversation about feeding raw food. And I know that's probably a separate podcast, but I would be concerned about bacterial contamination, the owner's environment, um, their family members and friends being at risk. And then also the concern about nutritional inadequacy with raw foods. And then recently there was an outbreak in cats that were fed raw food where they developed alimentary 
tuberculosis. So I think we need to be careful. So I think I, I don't encourage it for, for a few reasons. Absolutely, absolutely. So sorry, I, I took away your, your train of thought, but, um, but as far as acute presentation, so deciding whether they need to be hospitalised or, or, or not, is that sometimes a, a negotiation as well with the, with the people they can think they can manage the signs as long as they're drinking themselves and maintaining hydration or yeah. even as an outpatient maybe some subcut fluids or absolutely so i think if the owner's astute and they're willing to come back they don't live very far and they want to manage it as an outpatient and the animal's not dehydrated and electrolytes are normal and cardiovascular the, the dog is stable i think it's fine to do subcut fluids if, if you need to but i would say a lot of these animals are still eating and so you can switch them onto a highly digestible diet um, feeding them little and often boiled chicken and white rice they usually do a one-to-one -one ratio of cooked white rice for a few days i wouldn't feed that more than three to four days because it is unbalanced and then sometimes we can try things like procolin um, i wouldn't do antibiotics at that stage if there's no indication for it and and what about the uh, um maybe it's a historical sort of starve them for 12 24 hours and reintroduce a diet what's so that kind of train of thought is is gone out of fashion um i think what we say is we say not to fast them but we say not to give a hundred percent of their daily nutritional requirement either what we talk about is minimal luminal nutrition so what that means is you're kind of compromising you're starting at about 25 percent of their daily intake so you calculate their resting energy requirement based on their current body weight and then you feed them 25 percent of those calories on day one you can do 25 to 50 percent just minimal kind of luminal nutrition just to see how they're tolerating and then you can titrate upwards to 100 percent slowly using a highly digestible diet but what we know is that the enterocytes they need some nutrition and starving them completely you're comp you probably you may be compromising the intestinal barrier and then there's a concern there for bacterial translocation and what some of the studies suggest in, in, in dogs, there was one study in dogs with parvoviruses that the enteral nutrition really helped with their prognosis. So we do kind of encourage it. Unless if the animal has intractable vomiting and diarrhea, we don't usually say feed through that. So it's more probably the, the vomiting side than the diarrhea yeah. potentially. But also you just you, you do need to feed the enterocytes because they don't Absolutely. get their energy any other And other I wouldn't way. say to do 25% luminal nutrition, like 25% of their REO if they're otherwise eating while well, the diarrhea is not that bad. You don't need to cut them back to 25%. These are for cases where the diarrhea is really bad or they haven't been eating and you want to introduce a new diet slowly. And you said so, pro procalin. Mm -hmm. um, so, what, what do you think might be the the benefit for for for, for them? Uh. I think for acute diarrhea, I think it can help bind up the stool. If there's a if there's a toxic cause for the diarrhea, it could help to bind the toxins. Some of these products, depending on which one you're looking at, have some probiotic. There is some evidence for acute diarrhea that the probiotics can potentially help. Okay, and um, and not antibiotics. And I know that in in you know again historically or or. You know, maybe at certain um, uh, certain times, you know, through through studies or historically, sorry, I should have said that that, that uh, you know, metronidazole or certain antibiotics, you know, being quite quite commonplace, you mm. know, and and uh, and again, thankfully, that seems to be falling out of flavour. I know there is a potentially an antibiotic um, uh, responsive diarrhoea, but it's not common. Yeah, it's more the chronic case, large breeds, young dogs. Um, 
we would say for acute for an acute episode if the animal otherwise looks fine and can be treated on an outpatient basis a physical exam is unremarkable then we usually say not to do antibiotics there is a concern that the antibiotics can firstly cause a dysbiosis in itself that potentially could be long lasting in humans with inflammatory bowel disease there's some evidence that those patients were given antibiotics for other things earlier in life and that maybe have have caused a dysbiosis and could have led to this increased susceptibility to inflammatory bowel disease with everything else like the genetics and environment and diet and so could have just increased the chances and so we suspect potentially that might happen in dogs and cats um anecdotally when you think about these dogs that go on to develop inflammatory bowel disease if you look back in their history i think those studies need to be done and then i know people are doing that looking at antibiotics and seeing if the ones with inflammatory bowel disease had exposure so for that reason we try and stay away from it the second concern is the antibiotic resistance it's quite exciting that people are, are looking into that mm. that'd be absolutely fascinating mm. wouldn't it if you can get some causation uh, causation with that mm. and so so Artie, with the with the treatment of a, of uh, a, acute dogs i suppose it obviously depends on on how uh, severe they are whether they need to be hospitalized or or, or not with 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 the chronic dogs do you do you ask different questions or, or more ask for a, a uh, like a fecal diary or a poo diary as you as, as you said or are, are there slight tweaks to the way you approach things yeah i think if if the diarrhea has been going on for three or more weeks in, in a dog and it's either intermittent or persistent usually that calls for further investigations um so usually those dogs are presenting it's their second or third or fourth visit for the diarrhea and you've already tried things like diet change or procolin and it's important also even in cases of acute diarrhea I forgot to mention is to do a five-day course of panicure as well um to make sure these animals are dewormed with the broad spectrum um, dewormer. So the chronic cases, if they've not responded to dewormer or diet or other kind of symptomatic treatment, then really we're looking at doing further investigations in those dogs. And that would start with um, blood work firstly, so your haematology, biochemistry. We want to rule out any kind of secondary causes of gastrointestinal disease there. And we want to look at the white blood cell count. You want to make sure there is, is there a stress leukogram because typical or atypical hypodrenal cortisone sometimes can mimic these cases. We want to look at the hematology, the biochemistry. We want to look at the protein. Sometimes in these chronic cases, have they gone on to develop a protein-losing enteropathy? We want to look at the liver enzymes, the kidney values, all these things on your biochem, your electrolytes as well. And then if, if the Hematology and biochemistry are unremarkable. We do say to follow up with a basal cortisol, or at least an, at least a basal cortisol or an ACTH stim if, if that's indicated. If the basal cortisol is less than fifty-five, and then just to rule out atypical um, hypodrenal cortisism. and then then you're really thinking about measuring vitamin B twelve and folate, and there's a few reasons why we would do that. So, um, so. If the vitamin B12 is low, then that, there is a concern there for more severe kind of intestinal disease. So vitamin B12 is absorbed from the ileum. And so if it's low, that suggests that the, there's a problem with the absorption, absorption because of intestinal disease. So it potentially can give you an indication of the severity of the signs. And so if your B12 is low, usually we say need 
to be a little bit more aggressive with diagnostics. So that would be an indication, okay, we want to do an abdominal ultrasound, probably want to follow up with endoscopy so we can collect biopsies to see what's going on. It's also prognostic in, in some studies in chronic enteropathy. So if it's low, it might give you some information there. And then the third reason is if it's low, we definitely want to supplement vitamin B12. That's really important because having low vitamin B12 in itself can cause the animal to not want to eat, can have... Um, effects on the gastrointestinal tract so making sure that's normal by supplementing it's really important and then there is some concern that other treatment like steroids may not be effective if your b12 is low so it's really important to um to know if the b12 is low and if it is to supplement that also if your b12 is low it might give you indication to whether there could be an exocrine pancreatic insufficiency because you would see low b12 there again your chemistry might help because sometimes your cholesterol can be low the EPI dogs tend to have ravenous appetite, but not always. They lose weight. They have voluminous stools, sometimes stertoria. So it's important that if you have those kind of clinical signs or history that you also measure a TLI. Sometimes you can measure um, PLI if there's a concern for pancreatitis. And um, <clears throat> so is that something that quite commonly do measuring um, uh, um, you know, pancreatic lipase, but also uh, for exocrine fa- function as, as well? Um, if we haven't, so for dogs, if if they have the classic history or they ha- they're losing weight, then we will. But usually if it's just chronic diarrhea and they're not losing weight and their appetite's normal, our index of suspicion would be quite low. And if their cholesterol is normal and their vitamin B12 is normal, then I probably would keep it as a second tier if I didn't find anything rather than doing that straight off the bat. In cats, because cats with EPI have been shown to present with different kind of... They don't always present with the classic signs that you would expect... Again, maybe I'd be a little bit quicker doing a TLI in a cat than I would in a dog if it didn't have the classic signs. But it's really based on individual case-by-case basis. And when you're saying about like investigations as well, Artie, with, with chronic diarrhoea, do you, do you think at some point the, that you might get, um, I suppose, like false negative like results because the disease hasn't progressed as much as you'd be able to identify it on? ultrasound or biopsies or, or do you think we just don't know because i just i just wonder if you know if you are i had is is three weeks time enough to see these uh, these pathological changes mm. i think our issue is that we see more positives than negatives especially when we take biopsies in terms of interpreting histopathology in inflammatory bowel disease so i would say we always see something rather than nothing so i do think three weeks is enough i think for false negatives where i would be concerned is if the animal had received steroids prior to referring and you're doing things like basal cortisol i think bile acids can be an issue sometimes if the animal has diarrhea it may not um, absorb the bile acids with the enterohepatic recirculation so you might get normal bile acids because of the diarrhea in an animal that may have concurrent liver dysfunction potentially theoretically that could happen your b12 if, if again if it had been supplemented you could get a false negative there um 
sometimes with fecal when we're doing fecal parasitology which we didn't mention and usually we do we recommend doing a pooled sample three to five days of feces and and measuring that these parasites they can shed intermittently so even if your parasitology is negative or GRD is negative we always say to do make sure you do a five-day course of panicure so that's really important as well but um yeah I think I I don't think that's as big of a concern. There are certain re, um, results that you need to interpret in light of whether vitamin B12 was supplemented or the animal had steroids, for example, Depomedrin a couple of weeks ago that you need to bear in mind or if it's having really bad diarrhea and you're interpreting bile acids potentially. And I know here we can send off samples um, to a lab. I'm not sure whether our lab actually measures um, B12 themselves or folate or, or send them off, but I suppose that there's that feeling, isn't there, that if you think it, might be low than supplement it anyway but I suppose it, it is quite important that you know if it's low before you, you yeah supplement it. I mean you can always collect the sample and then start supplementation um so that's something you can do if you are concerned that the b12 is especially have a skinny older cat and you want to give it vitamin b12 supplementation we do encourage measurement prior to supplementation because like you said it does give you information and it does potentially direct whether you're going to do endoscopy sooner rather than later okay and uh, so do you approach cats in a, in a similar vein or do cats have some unique uh... cats do have some unique conditions that you would want to get off the table so tritrichomonas is a big one and um I, i'm still surprised at how I, I don't feel like that's investigated that much in practice when i'm going through records so i think that's really important and with tritrichomonas, the kind of classic clinical signs you would see is, is large bowel diarrhea in these cats, urgency, a lot of blood mucus. Sometimes you can see their anus protruding. It looks kind of sore. Um, so really large bowel signs. And you can get false negatives with um, the PCR test for tritrichomonas. It's really important to test the kind of bloody mucusy stool because that's where they like to hide out and so you can get negatives and so it's really important to try and pull samples to get the bloody mucoity stool sometimes we even recommend doing colonic washes in these cases to try and get a good sample a good diagnostic sample because the treatment is ranidazole and it's not like panicure when you can just empirically use it it is associated with side effects we're using it off license so you need a positive test and I know of um, gastroenterologists who have said they've had a cat and they've tested it multiple times and they only got the positive like on the fourth or the fifth or even the sixth attempt. Oh. So it's important to rule that condition out. And then in cats as well, hyperthyroidism is, is another one that can cause chronic diarrhea, chronic vomiting, weight loss, polyphagia. So that's so we do recommend running t4s if the cat's older than seven or eight as part of our gastroenterology investigations or investigations for gastro and gastrointestinal signs so that's something to be aware of in cats and then so then cats can get triaditis where they can get cholangitis and pancreatitis so in that respect they're a little bit different from dogs and do you, do you think you, you treat them in a, in a similar way um, as far as a, a, acute and, and chronic and, and a similar yeah. level of investigations? Yeah, I, I do. But I would say dogs more frequently present for acute gastroenteritis than cats. Cats are a bit different. I think you see chronic more. Um, 
But in terms of treatment for chronic, it's similar. We would do a therapeutic diet trial with probably a hydrolyzed diet. We would prioritize that over novel protein. And then we would do that for at least six weeks and, and see what the response is. We would deworm the cats with five days of panicure, measure vitamin B12, do our diagnostics. And then if they fail to respond to that, then really we're looking at trying to get intestinal biopsy before we decide if they're a candidate for steroids. There is some concern about histopathology interpretation in cats, um, whether how easy it is or how yeah, how easy it is to differentiate chronic enteropathy or inflammatory bowel disease from small cell lymphoma. And so sometimes we have to add on PAR or IHC, and even then it's a little bit unclear. And so there is this kind of school of thought now that should we be biopsying cats with chronic GI signs once they fail diet trial and deworming, should we just try steroids? And if they don't respond, then add in chlorambucil because that would be the treatment for IBD that was refractory to steroids and then small cell lymphoma. But we sometimes see cases of neutrophilic colitis or neutrophilic inflammation in these biopsies. And so there was one study that showed that that was associated potentially with Campylobacter, so maybe immunosuppressing. Sometimes there are some merit to take getting biopsies, I guess, if you have those kind of uncommon cases of neutrophilic inflammation, it can give you a more accurate picture of what's going on, but really it depends on the owner as well and what they want to do. And the, the population of uh, patients we see as, ref, as referrals, you know, people have already, you know, maybe gone to their gone to their vet and then you know, sought more in, information. Do you, I was just wondering with the with the dark trials themselves. Do you, do you find that something that people readily do well, or is it something that actually is quite a struggle? And and with that. Are cats and dogs any different or do people just struggle with that in in general? I think that's a really good question. So in my opinion, so the cases that I've managed and seen, I would have said the compliance was very good. But then Karen Allen Spack did a study here. I think it was about 200 cases of, of dogs with chronic enteropathy and it's been published in the vet record. And I think she showed quite a few, I don't know the exact percentages, but it was quite a few dogs that went home on just diet and the compliance was not that great, but those dogs still went into remission and did well. So it kind of questions how exclusive they need to be. And we always talk about they need to be on the hydrolyzed diet 100%, just this and water, no flavored medications, no uh, nothing else per us. But whether that how true that is, I think that's something we need to look at again and, and question. How how would we go about that? So I think I think these retrospective studies are good, which is what Karen had did, is like following up with owners, asking them, because in hindsight, I think owners, once their dog is in remission and they're not showing clinical signs, I think they're more likely to be honest and say, well, actually, I was feeding the hydrolyzed diet with pedigree chum and my dog did fine. And I think they're more willing to offer that information. So I think knowing that really helps us because hydrolyzed diets aren't very palatable. And so if we can mix it with other things, if we knew that, then it, it would really help us with compliance and it would help the amount of owners that would choose that option. I mean, owners do it generally, but it would be good to know, I think. Because previously I've known some dermatologists would only, you know, have a look at animals when they've been on a on a, a, a dietary exclusion. Mm. But then, like, as it said, the compliance for that, I mean, it's very difficult to yeah. get people to comply to take medications, you know, themselves and... and 
Mm. I just wonder. Yeah, it it is quite a, a challenge. And I think dermatology. I think the um, the aim of the, of the trial is a bit different because you're trying to to eliminate the allergen but in gi cases how many of them are truly allergic to food versus we're changing other aspects of the food such as we're trying to choose ingredients that they tolerate we're altering the fat content the digestibility we're altering so many things to help the intestinal tract so it's not so much maybe about trying to eliminate the allergens i guess we just don't know Um, and then cats a little bit frustrating just because so many in this country go out their outdoor cats and whether they're getting fed elsewhere or whether they're hunting I, I think is an issue and, and cats generally to get them onto a, a diet sometimes can be hard they develop fixed preferences very early on for certain flavors and textures of food and the hydrolyzed diets they generally mostly come in a dry form there are a couple of manufacturers do wet and so if you want to feed a particular hydrolyzed diet that has say for example lower fat then you're restricted to just feeding dry and if that cat has fed has been fed wet food its whole life that transition can be hard so cats are a little bit difficult to get onto new diets compared to dogs yeah one of my favorite sets i'm not sure whether it's true or not was like a third of people who buy cat food don't own a cat <laughs> So yeah, but I suppose as well to yeah. characterise their uh, their diarrhoea might be quite challenging as well. If cats do get uh, free access to go outside, yeah, and, uh, yeah, that's that's very true. And then we and we ask owners, and they say, well, they don't see the stool. Yeah, so that can, that can be difficult. So it might be just staining that they see. Uh, uh, yeah, or they're just relying on the cat's vomiting, or it's not eating, or it's losing weight. We see a lot of cats where the primary complaint is weight loss. And the owners don't know about fecal quality. And then we do blood work. We measure T4. We measure B12. B12 is low. Everything else is okay. And then we're thinking, okay, this points more towards the GI tract. It's not renal. It's not hyperthyroidism. It's not liver. What else is causing the weight loss? And then we say, well, it's probably GI. <laughs> so I suppose that's, that's great as, a, as an example of maybe if they, they can't actually tell you that information, but, mm-hmm. um, but it could be where you're, where you're led to for, yeah. for, for sure. Yeah. And, and would you, with, with cats, in, as far as uh, treatment goes with, uh, with acute setting, have you, have you tried um, or, or you know, procalin or probiotics or anything like that in a supportive way? Or are they a bit more fickle to... Um, they really, they do like Fortiflora because it's like an, it contains an animal digest, so they tend to find that palatable. Um, but what the studies show in cats with the acute diarrhea is certainly probiotics can help in the acute setting. So that's something worth trying, absolutely, with with your panicure. And and do you are you thinking about so you mentioned about dysbiosis a, a bit earlier on and and do you think in in well, clinical work are you trying to um, use like probiotics a, a bit a bit more or a bit less or differently? I think even in acute setting, I, I think it, it's fine to use. In the chronic setting, I would start with diet, five days of panicure. Usually if they fail that and then we've gone to endoscopy biopsy and it looks like it's a chronic enteropathy, I would try steroids if they fail diet. Probiotic is something I would use kind of a second, third tier. Um, If the owner is reluctant to do steroids and the animal clinically isn't that bad, it's had a partial response to a hydrolyzed diet, there's not that strong indication where it needs steroids and I will add probiotic at that 
time to see if I can get better stool consistency or improvement in clinical size. It's kind of, again, it varies case to case, but usually I use it more in the in the cases where maybe where there's partial response to diet where, where I don't feel that there's a strong indication for steroids because the clinical signs aren't that bad. Or if we've added steroids and it's still not, we're still not getting optimal because it's more as an adjunctive rather than a first tier. And can I ask Artie as, as well, sort of what, are there, are there things you approach now differently sort of with your clinical experience as regards to, um, regards to uh, either mainly like treatment of acute or chronic diarrhea and are there things that you want to ask in the in the future are there questions that you have about how we should manage these these cases that's a a really good question i guess well the way the way i've managed it differently there's been quite a bit of research looking at oral cobalamin supplementation versus subcutaneous and and so that's something that's really interesting now in terms of how we manage that that's changed so we usually we can we sometimes will recommend oral cobalamin supplementation to see if that will maintain levels cats again potentially we're changing a little bit do we scope them do we not I, i think that's interesting um in terms of there has been some research that's come out in dogs with protein losing enteropathy where if their albumins aren't that low and clinically they don't look that bad maybe we can give them time just on diet to see if they respond to a hydrolyzed diet because historically we've always kind of done a multimodal approach where we start steroids very quickly with everything else but whether we stage them and, and see if the dog will respond to just diet so so maybe we should be doing more sequential rather than multimodal in the PLEs. But I think, again, we need more research in that area. The area that I'm really interested in is nutrition. Um, So I'm looking at the effects of hydrolyzed diets in cats at the moment. I've got one clinical trial, which is nearly coming towards completion, where we're looking at metabolome and microbiota in these cats before and after hydrolyzed diets. And what we want to try and do is to try and see if we can use the metabolome and microbiota to predict which cats are going to respond to hydrolyzed diets versus those that need steroids. And so we've got about 20 cats in each group, responders, non-responders, that we're going to compare microbiota and metabolome on to see if we can see if there's a difference. The other area, I'm also looking at the Vet Compass database. So I've identified five and a half thousand cats that have been on hydrolyzed diets that have been prescribed by general practitioners. And we're looking to see what kind of response these cats have just to hydrolyzed diets before they are referred. And then finally, I'm also interested in elemental enteral diets, elemental diets, the type of diets they use in human pediatric inflammatory bowel disease, whether we could get better response in our protein-losing enteropathy cases. That's uh, that's, that's fascinating. (laughs) Well, maybe we need to uh, come back and and chat about those when you you get some of these um, uh, results. Do you you think we've um, missed any uh, major thing of either the uh, acute or chronic in in dogs or cats or their... uh, Um, I think the only other thing I will add, the question that I get asked by students and um, interns and what I always tell my residents is when do we go for empirical trials versus endoscopy biopsy in dogs with chronic diarrhea and I think that's something that comes up a bit and what we talk about is um, 
according to the WSAVA GI standardization group, there's kind of five criteria that they use to recommend whether you would do an empirical diet trial or whether you would go to endoscopy and collect biopsies and, and how you decide. And we usually say if the animal's maintaining its weight, its appetite, it's not lethargic, its albumin's normal, its vitamin B12 is normal, you do abdominal ultrasound, the intestinal tract looks okay, there's no thickening, loss of layering, no lymphadenopathy. Then we say in that instance, if the owner wants to try a hydrolyzed diet, we'll do that as the first instance. If they're if the vitamin B12 is low, the albumin's low, the dog's not eating or it's losing weight or you're seeing abnormalities on ultrasound, we would say to be a little bit more aggressive with diagnostics and to do endoscopy and collect biopsies. Depending on what the ultrasound shows, sometimes it shows the lesion is in the jejunum, then really we can't do endoscopy and you're looking at X-lap. So I would say, yeah, that's something else to consider. Do, do you think the... Uh, the been study sort of looking at the samples that you get from endoscopy compared to histopathology are we i suppose are we getting better at endoscopy and getting the samples that we need yeah so there have been some studies which show that really we need to try and collect ileal biopsies and that gives you potentially more information in cats we know we can diagnose more cases of small cell lymphoma that you would see it in the ileum you see cases in the ileum that you don't see in the jejunum of small cell lymphoma so there is i do think we're getting better at collecting ileal biopsies i mean the pros and cons of doing full thickness versus partial i mean full thickness is, is invasive and um, it requires ex- laparotomy and then if the animal's albumin is low there's always a concern about wound healing and those sorts of things so i think on the whole endoscopy we can usually get a diagnosis in terms of guiding treatment and we are getting better, I think, at doing in the biopsies to get a more global picture. Excellent. Well, um, well, I think we'll wrap it up there, Artie, but we've definitely Thank given you. us uh, food for thought, if you pardon the pun, and also uh, I think that'd be great about uh, um, maybe talking about raw food at some point in time. Maybe I can persuade uh, Professor Chan and you to talk and we can get a bit of fireworks going, I'm sure, probably. <laughs> um, but uh, thank you very much. We'll wrap it up there. So thank you for your time as, as well. So thanks for listening and don't forget to hit that subscribe button um, on your generic fruit-based device and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you can kind of leave us a review on Apple Podcast or Acast or wherever you get your podcast, then that'd be great. Don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends and others. We'll play some show notes on the RBC pages. So just type in RBC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree. If you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield.rbc.ac.uk or tweet at Tom Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.